All right, Joshua 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of God. I am I'm a huge movie fan. Uh, I love movies. Um, I wouldn't call myself a movie snob, but some may call me a movie snob. And this time of the year, I love watching the movie It's a Wonderful Life. We actually just watched it a couple of nights ago, Christmas night. Um, there's parts of it that are really cheesy. I was noticing as I was watching it, it's like some of this is just, this old school movie stuff is just really cheesy. Now, there are not a lot of movies that can withdraw an emotional response from me, but there is one scene in It's a Wonderful Life that gets me every time. <clears throat> it's at the end of the movie when George Bailey and his family and all the people from the town are in their living room and they start singing Old Lang Syne together. And because George Bailey has been given a great gift, he's been able to see uh, all the ways that he has been blessed, and he gets to see how significant his life is. So as the end of the year is approached for George Bailey, he gets to reflect not only on his past year, but his whole life. And it's such a pretty romantic view of uh, Old Lang Syne and, and New Year's Eve and all this stuff. And so I was thinking about us. You know, the, the title of today's sermon is A Committed Spirit in the New Year. And, and where I'm coming from is that when we look at New Year's Eve and we look at the year to come, we probably don't feel the same romantic feelings that George Bailey was feeling. As we look back on 2015, there's probably a lot of regret and guilt and disappointment at our failures. And think about, maybe you had some New Year's resolutions uh, back in January 1, 2015. Now look at what happened to those. Where are they now? Where are they today? Maybe some of you had success. Um, my guess is that there would be a lot of us that did not have success. And the things that we set ourselves to probably did not work out too well. But just think about all the things you told your family and friends that you want to commit to. Um, maybe you said, this year I'm going to do blank, or this year I will not do blank. And maybe it happened, and maybe it didn't. Um, but as we look forward to the new year in four days, you know, we get to sing Old Lang Syne, and we get to have fresh starts and new beginnings. And maybe this is a year that I will actually follow through on my commitments. Maybe this is a year that things will go according to my plans. And even as I mention uh, New Year's resolutions, I know there are uh, some of us that cringe inside. Um, some of you are already preparing yourself for failure. Now, if you're a part of my generation, 
your only New Year's resolution is to not have any New Year's resolutions. If you start talking about resolve and commitment with my generation, we get so whiny. Uh, it's like any time that we're expected to commit to something specific, we start waving the banner. This is legalistic. I don't like this. This is gross. I don't want to do this. I admit that this is a fault of my generation. It's peppered with arrogance, that attitude. And we forget the account of Jesus and Zacchaeus, that Jesus came into the home of Zacchaeus. The gospel was proclaimed. And Zacchaeus stands up and says, Lord, I'm going to give half of my goods to the poor. And to all the people I have defrauded, I will pay them back four times over. And then we have to realize, how did Jesus respond to Zacchaeus' resolutions? They say, whoa, Zacchaeus, hold your horses. That's too legalistic. We can't do that. No, he said, behold, salvation has come to this house today. Jesus receives and welcomes our resolutions because our resolutions do not save us, but they are revealing the work of Christ in our hearts. Jesus does not have a problem with resolutions. I know there are some other, others of us in here who um, you adopt the philosophy of to, in order to avoid failure, I just won't have any New Year's resolutions. I think I fall into that sometimes. Um, you fear committing yourself because you fear failure. Failure results in revealing your inadequacies. And that's scary. That's dangerous. For you, when you read the account of Peter stepping out of the boat, walking on the water towards Christ, and then sinking like a stone, you conclude that it's just better if I stay in the boat. Commitment resolutions by nature carry a risk of failure. And we often value our safety above our commitment. So I thought in light of resolutions, as they cause us to wrestle with the notion of commitment, uh, I thought it would be good if we examine commitment as Christians. What, is, what does the word commitment mean to us as Christians? And so I want to operate out of two specific definitions of commitment, okay? The first one, commit, means to obligate oneself unto something or someone else. And two, commit means to entrust oneself or something unto something or someone else. So this is our starting point. When we say commit, we're talking about obligating ourselves and entrusting ourselves. Obligation and trust. I want us to consider these things and ponder on these um, because as we consider the ways that we fail to commit to God, we realize that A, we fail to make a commitment, meaning we just will not or do not state our obligations, state our commitments, or B, we just don't follow through on our commitments. We don't see our commitments to the end of the line. Um, and what I'm proposing to you this morning is that the reason that we fail to obligate ourselves to God um, is because we do not trust or believe God. That second definition of commit is to entrust. And we cannot be fruitful in the first definition, obligation, if we do not embrace the second, entrusting ourselves to God. So consider this passage we just read in Joshua chapter 1. Uh, if we remember, Moses and the people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt, and they are on this long journey to the promised land. And it comes to pass that Moses and many of the older generation of the Israelites will not be permitted to enter into the promised land. Um, and so Moses, you know, he is approaching his death. Joshua, his right-hand man, is appointed as his successor. Um, Moses remains faithful until his death. He dies. And so there's this, you know, what do we do now season amongst the people of God. And so God comes to Joshua. Uh, first, he uh, gives the shortest eulogy in the Bible. Moses is dead. So now that God has cleared the air, he charges Joshua with the mission. He hands the promise over to Joshua. 
He calls forth obligation from Joshua. He gives him his mission. He tells him these are the things that you are supposed to be committed to and that you are supposed to be about. Now, we just said that we want to think about commitment in regards to obligation and trust. So what do we see in verse 9? Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So when the Lord says to Joshua, have I not commanded you? God is calling forth obligation from Joshua. God is emphasized it is the Lord who is commanding. It is the Lord who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. It is the Lord who poured out his power through the plagues. It is the Lord who parted the Red Sea. It is the Lord who kept them safe. When God takes the time to point out to Joshua that it is the Lord who is commanding him, have I not commanded you, God intends to invoke the memory of Joshua. There are various points in the book of Deuteronomy where the following statement is spoken by God. You shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day. Joshua would have recalled all the times that the Lord said this. This would have been very present on his mind. By this, we see that Joshua is calling, that God is calling Joshua to fulfill his obligation to the Lord. Now, we may be tempted here to insult the Lord and say, well, that just kind of sounds like God's just haggling with Joshua. Like, well, Joshua, since, you know, I, I saved you guys, I brought you out of Egypt, you need to do this for me. You need to take my people into the promised land. And let's be sure that that's not true. When, when God said to the Israelites, the Lord God redeemed you, let us remember that redeemed means that God purchased them. God purchased the people of Israel. He bought them out of the tyranny of Pharaoh. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. The people of Israel belong to God. God is no haggler. He does not bargain. He redeemed the people of Israel. Of course they are obligated to obey the commandments of the Lord under Joshua's leadership because they belong to God. They are God's possession. But in order to establish his ownership of his people, in order to talk about obligation, God always builds that off of trust. He repeatedly reminded the people of Israel that it is the Lord who redeemed them. God saved them. He is re- he's saying, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that I commanded Pharaoh to let you go, and when he refused, I poured out my power on him. Remember that when I parted the Red Sea and let you safely pass, how I poured those waters back down on Pharaoh and his army. God always builds our commitment and our obligations upon a foundation of trust. Looking back at verse 9, God says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The Lord does not simply demand obligation and obedience because the Lord is not a tyrant. He calls Joshua and the Israelites to entrust themselves to the Lord. He calls them to place their very lives into the hands of the living God. He gives them all the power and all the reason that they need to fulfill this mission, to go to the promised land. What's the power and reason? It's that God will be with them wherever they go. They can trust him. I think here we probably need to stop and confess that there is a painful reality that we so often fail to obligate ourselves to God, don't we? We fail to be obedient to the things he has commanded us to do. We fail to embrace the roles and the callings he has placed in our life. You know, we, we, we fail to nurture and cherish our family. We fail to share the gospel. We fail to put sin to death by the Spirit, and instead we let it fester and grow. We have a half-hearted commitment to the church. And it just seems that there's a constant wishing that we had done better. Doesn't it? 
a constant nagging feeling, I wish I had done better. When we look at 2015, we wish it looked different in a lot of ways. Consider the failures of the people of Israel. As God brought them out of the land of Egypt, um, they had to go on this really harsh journey. And so as they experienced the hardship of the journey, they experienced the wilderness, um, they start complaining, they start grumbling. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, we see that the Israelites actually said things like, the Lord hates us, and he's going to hand us over to our enemies. They actually said that it would have been better if the Lord had just left them in bondage and slavery in Egypt. At one point, towards the end of Exodus, Moses has gone on the mountain, receiving instruction from the Lord, receiving the Ten Commandments. And while he's gone, the Israelites tell Aaron, make us some gods that will go before us. Moses has gone two seconds, and they turn to idol worship. They start worshiping a golden cow. And all this blasphemy, all this grumbling, all this complaining, is all due to the fact that the Israelites cannot commit themselves, they cannot obligate themselves, because they do not trust God. They don't believe God. If you do not trust God, you cannot truly obligate yourself to God. The Israelites did not commit. We also see that in Numbers. God commanded them to send spies into the land of Canaan, which would be the promised land. So the spies go. They do whatever spies do. They survey and examine. They come back and they give a report to Moses and the people of Israel. And they tell them the people in the land are tall. They're strong. They're great warriors. They have walls guarding their land. And as the people of Israel hear this, they spend all night long complaining. They say the same things that they said in Deuteronomy chapter 1. They cry and complain and say, if only we had died in Egypt. Or if we had died in the desert, why is the Lord bringing us to this land just to have us die in battle? The Israelites were paralyzed in fear over the size and strength of their enemy instead of focusing on and meditating on the size and the strength of their God. This is what held them out of the promised land because they did not trust God and they therefore cannot commit themselves to the mission that he had given them. Another person that we should consider is Peter. Uh, Good old Peter. Uh, in that time, at the Last Supper, when Jesus was spending the time uh, to tell the disciples everything that was going to happen pertaining to his suffering and his death. And so Peter hears everything, and obviously Peter has a very zealous response for Jesus. He tells him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And it's just like, that is a noble stated commitment. That is a noble resolution I would even applaud it. But at least Jesus is gracious enough to brace Peter for his coming failure. He says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. So the the moment comes where Jesus is arrested. He's dragged in the court for that pathetic excuse of a trial. And Peter watches in the courtyard from the shadows around the fire. And three different people attempt to identify him and associate with him with Christ. And, and you're reading that, you're like, come on, Jesus just told you this. Like, surely, Peter, you can recognize what's happening. Don't deny the Lord. And, of course, he denies the Lord three times. And it's such a blatant failure, such a terrible failure to have such a strong and noble stated commitment and then crash and burn so badly. I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still talking about it. Nobody's going to be talking about your failures in 2,000 years But Peter is who he is. Now, just as we fail to fulfill our obligations to obey and follow God, we also fail to entrust ourselves to God. We fail to trust him. We fail to place our lives into the hands of God. I think the greatest condemnation, the greatest indication of that 
is how troubled and consumed we are with anxiety and fear and stress and dread. Every time we look to the next day or we look to the next week or the next month or the next year, there's this constant atmosphere of dread, scared about what's coming. As we look into the time to come, we see darkness. There are dark times coming. And we live with a posture and an attitude in our hearts to ask, God, as I go through this darkness, as I navigate through this darkness, are are you really going to be there? Can I really place my life in your hands? Are you really going to be there for me through all this and at the end? Are you going to be on the other side of this? We know that Jesus told us not to worry about tomorrow, but it's so hard to not wonder if God is really going to be there through tomorrow's difficulties and hardships. Um, For you parents, as you know, being a parent opens you up to new realms of experiences and new realms of education in that there are often times when your child does something and you get the thought, well, maybe this is what God feels like. And so um, I actually had a moment earlier in the year that kind of reveals something about my character. And um, before I came on staff for the church here in June, I was on staff with Campus Outreach, which is a college ministry that this church partners with. And we were in Birmingham, and so um, through much prayer and counsel, Emily and I, my wife, had decided uh, that we were going to transition off staff of campus outreach at the end of the spring semester. Um, Now, we didn't have any big leads moving forward. We didn't know what was going to be happening in regards to career and in regards to a job. And not to mention that my wife was pregnant with our daughter. So significant question marks were there. And so then I remember there was one week, you know, during all this, early in the year, where um, I had to be out of the house for like two nights in a row. Um, just the nature of being in college ministry, it's probably, we had a campus meeting, maybe a Bible study on campus, but in both of those nights, I missed bedtime with my boy, Crosby. And, um, and then for some reason, I, was, I think I was like gone when he woke up both of those next mornings. So the third night comes, and I finally get to be back and, and do bedtime with Cros. And, um, as we are going through the bedtime routine, which means, you know, uh, we read a book, we read a Bible story, we pray, we, uh, we rock in his chair, I sing to him because my boy is the only one that doesn't mind my singing voice, Ed. And, um, and so after, after we sing, I, you know, we tuck him in bed, you know, so I'm on, you know, it's just me and him and I'm on the floor <clears throat> arranging his covers until he's looking up at me, and he's being quiet. He's usually pretty rowdy. And so I look down at him, and <clears throat> his uh, two-year-old voice, he says, Daddy, be out there? I could really detect the doubt and the uncertainty in his voice. It was, you know, such a simple... I mean, if this had happened last week, it would have been nothing. Um, but I could see in his eyes, I could hear in his voice the uncertainty. Daddy be out there? Yeah. In that moment, it was like the Lord took sandpaper, just scraped it across my soul. And, you know, so I, as I'm giving him the assurance, buddy, I'm always here for you. I'm right out there. Mommy and I are here for you. Um, it just really forced me to connect with what had been going on in my heart during this time. That so often, without realizing, 
I've been questioning in my heart if God was going to be there for me and my family. And I've been questioning if God was really going to be present and powerful on my behalf. I really doubted if I could entrust myself to God. I really doubted if he would be with me through the darkness. And this was all because I had failed to remember that I too was once a slave in Egypt. That the Lord had redeemed me. And that Christ was committed to drowning the pharaohs in my life. And the fact that, you know, I get to stand before you today and serve this church, it's a testament to God's commitment to proving to me that I can trust myself to him. And the passage that really stuck a deep core with me, um, you know, kind of even through that season, was Psalm 31, 1 through 5. And I want to talk about this. You know, everybody thinks that this is a psalm where David, is being pursued by Saul and his men. You know, Saul is seeking to put him to death. Um, and so as we read this, I, w- I want you to really take note of the, the strong petitions that David prays for. Let's read this together. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden from me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. So David's reflecting on these hardships of his current situation. You know, uh, God has these people set traps for me, you know, uh, and they pursue me to put me to death. As they seek to shame me, I ask that you hear my prayers. I ask that you deliver me for your name's sake. I ask that you not put me to shame. You are strong. You lead me. You are my protection. So we come across the buzzword for the day in verse 5. David says, into your hand I commit my spirit. David entrusts himself to God because he remembers that God has redeemed him. David pushes forward in the things he knows God has called him to. He remains committed and obligating himself to God because he meditates on the faithfulness of God. He's constantly replacing his trust in God. David knows that he can place his life in the hands of God. And so, you know, even as I read that passage, you know, I I think something that we fail to do often is to just ponder on the character of God and what he is like. When was the last time that you did that? When was the last time that you pondered on the character of God and simply enjoyed what he is like? When was the last time that you read through the Old Testament and marveled at the way that the Lord continues and repeats and restates his commitment to his people? In the Old Testament, you know, even in the face of harsh discipline, the people of God continue to hear from him and hear God's commitment to them. In Hosea 11, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. For I am God and not a man. And aren't you so glad that God's commitment is not like our commitment? Aren't you so glad that in the way that God commits himself to us, he doesn't become indifferent, he doesn't become apathetic, he doesn't become shaky. Even in the midst of the unbelief of the Israelites, God still reminds them that the Lord carried you as a man carries his son. And how often does God have to prove himself to us before we start to trust him? When was the last time that you pondered on God's name, Yahweh? Yahweh was the name that would have been whispered by the Israelites. It would have, upon hearing it, it would have 
sent shivers down their spine out of reverent fear. Yahweh is built off the phrase, I am. That's how God named himself to Moses. Jesus claims the same name in the Gospels and nearly gets himself killed. There is a certain awe that we must associate in the fact that God would name himself I am. Because as we are confronted with his name, I am, we're confronted with two truths. A, God has no beginning and no end. And B, there is nothing in all of existence, all of creation, all of the universe, that does not depend on the existence of God. There's nothing in this universe that can continue to function outside of the willful desires and actions of the living God. From these gigantic stars, whose size we can't even begin to fathom, down to the cohesion between atoms, everything is held together in its existence and its function because God wills it to be so and because God exists. Uh, I read something that Piper said a while back. He said that, uh, John Piper, if God should utterly cease to think of me, then I would utterly cease to exist. What a humbling thought. If it were possible for you to slip the mind of God, you would just vanish. You would be gone. There would be nothing remaining of you. It's a humbling thought. It makes us feel small. And I just thought about, like, you know, when you go to your, when you go to your work, go to your job, go to school, whatever, um, your family is not actively on your mind all day long. You're like, sure, you think about them every couple of minutes or a few times an hour, but they are not actively present on your mind. So how would it make you feel to know that if at work, if you stopped actively thinking about your children, that they would stop breathing or they would just vanish? That's a terrifying thought. But it's absolutely true of God. If God were to stop thinking of you and considering you, intentionally considering you, you would just cease to exist. You'd be gone. Now, as humbling as that thought is, and as small as that makes us feel, how much more humble and amazed should we be at the thought that the great I am has not only committed himself to sustaining your existence, but he is also committed to playing a sovereignly active role in your joy and your well-being. How humbling is it to know that God's mercies for you are new every morning. God treats his care for you, his mercy for you, his love for you as though it is brand new every day. God, the great I am, has committed himself to his people for his glory. Now, going back to Psalm 31, when we come across Psalm 31.5, when David states his trust to God, when he says, into your hand, I commit my spirit. That should sound really familiar. So where have we heard that before? These words, this sentiment is echoed hundreds of years later when Christ is on the cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was put to shame. He was abandoned. He was left alone. He had been stripped, beaten, scourged, spat on, mocked, his beard pulled, and he was slapped. And there was no deliverance to come. There was no rescue. He was despised and rejected by men. He was rejected by God. There was no fortress for Jesus. All those petitions that David had in Psalm 31, 1 through 4, they did not exist for Christ on the cross. Jesus knew the trap that was laid out for him. He knew it. 
He knew that it was coming from before the foundation of the world. He knew it in all his time with his disciples. So what was Christ's heart? What was his posture during that time of shame and abandonment? We can read that. We'll look at Luke 23, verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. So in the face of abandonment, in the face of shame, in the face of death, Jesus perpetually committed himself to the Father. The only perfect person who has ever lived, who had every right and reason to call out those petitions that we see in Psalm 31. Instead, he remained silent and he remained committed to his Father's will. Constant, never-ending, never-yielding perfection. And because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, endured the shame and the agony of the cross and perfectly obligated and entrusted himself to the Father, we get the privilege and the power to commit ourselves to God. Because Jesus had perfect commitment, God accepts and sanctifies our imperfect commitment. Jesus perfectly remained in the face of being treated as an enemy of God. And because he perfectly remained in all that shame and suffering, because he perfectly remained, we get to perfectly remain as children of God. Christ has redeemed us. He has purchased us by his blood. And just as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, that Christ died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We are no longer to be committed to ourselves and our kingdoms. We are to be committed to God. So where do we go from here? You know, what do we do with our failures? You know, as, as we look back on 2015 and, and there are so many failures, or we look back on our life and there are so many failures, what do we do with all the regret and the guilt and the shame, the disappointment? You know, we are wavering in our commitment on a daily basis. I don't have a single day that goes by where I do not fail to commit myself to God either through obligation or through trusting him. So, um, you know, as we look at January through this month and all the ways that we stumbled, it's like we're saying, Lord, I know I'm called to commit myself to your kingdom, but as I look back on this past year and even my life, I just had this overwhelming sense that I've blown it. I've completely ruined it. So what does Jesus have to say to us? How does Jesus choose to respond to our failures? If we go back and look at the account, you know, of Peter denying the Lord and how he failed to stick with Jesus through it all, I, I think that we can get a sense of uh, what Jesus has to say to us about our failures. You know, I, I, I can't imagine the devastation that Peter must have felt. I can't imagine the shame. I can't imagine the devastation that you feel over your failures. I know I get haunted by my failures. But in Peter's account of his failure... Um, it's such a blatant example of someone failing to follow through on their commitments to God. Such a harsh example. But our failures are the same. They're the same as Peter's in that we know the gospel, we know that Christ was crucified for our sins, and yet we still live for our kingdom. We still put ourselves on the throne of our life. We still live and speak as though we are kings. That's treason. We have betrayed Christ. Like Peter, 
We betray Christ in many and various ways. So I would say to you that whatever Jesus has to say to Peter, that he has to say to us as well. Christ's response to Peter can be the same response for us. And we know that Jesus did have a response for Peter because Jesus was resurrected. And even though the disciples had scattered, he brought them back together. Jesus is walking along the shore. And he sees that some of them are out there fishing. He calls out to them and they recognize him. And so they rush in. And they build a fire and they have breakfast. And, and you know, as amazing and happy and um, wonderful uh, I don't, and, you know, how that breakfast must have been, you know, just... Um, I would also imagine it was pretty awkward. Each disciple has to think about the way that they failed Christ. And I would think the person that feels the most awkward would be Peter. Try to imagine how shameful he felt sitting around that fire with Jesus. He probably couldn't make eye contact with him. So Jesus is going to take the opportunity to clear the air. Let's read John chapter 21. when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you he said to him feed my lambs he said to him a second time Simon son of John do you love me he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you he said to him tend my sheep he said to him the third time Simon son of John do you love me Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. For those of us in Christ, there's great hope this morning. We can know how Jesus chooses to respond to all our many failures and all the many ways we've let him down. We can know how Christ responds. Christ has bought us, he has claimed us as his own. We are a child of God. In the face of all our failures, Jesus' response to us is, do you love me? And if we say yes, he says, then let's move forward. Let's keep going. We're not going to live in the past. We're not going to dwell on this. You are not going to be eaten up with shame over this. We are going to move forward, and you're coming with me. Jesus always takes us back. Jesus never casts us off, and he never forsakes us. Through it all, Jesus receives us back into fellowship and he repeatedly launches us back into the work of the kingdom. Did you really struggle to spend quality time in the Bible this year? Instead of taking your Bible away from you, Jesus says, read it, abide in it. Do you love me? Find life in me. Find life in this book. Were you not all that faithful in having spiritual conversations with your neighbors and your coworkers? your friends and your family. To you, Jesus says, do you love me? Well, I've given you the greatest honor in the universe to come and work in my kingdom, to take this gospel forward. Let's do it. Let's do it together. Did you, were you really angry with your family this year, with your spouse or your children? To you, Jesus says, do you love me? Then cherish the wife I've given you. Honor the husband I've given you. Nurture and delight in the children I have given you. Did you really struggle in your commitment to the local church? Jesus says, do you love me? Well, then come be with my body. Come be with my bride. This is where I've placed your growth and your sanctification. Come and delight in this. 
He doesn't close the doors of the church on you. He opens them wider and invites you even more. Jesus does not hold a grudge against you. Christ holds no grudges. Jesus does not think that you need to go sit in the corner with your nose in the wall and think about what you've done. Instead, Jesus says, repent and believe, which is the gospel's way of saying resolve and trust. Move forward. I still remember my first semester of college when the guy who shared the gospel with me and led me to Christ, he asked me the question, he said, Jones, what's your, what's your view of God? I was surprised at how quickly I responded. And I told him, I said, I think God is a distant judge who's shaking his head at me because he's disappointed. I just, I realized that so often I slip back into that. So often I want to slip back into thinking, God is just so bitter and angry with my failures. He's keeping his distance from me. And he's just shaking his head at me in disappointment. And as I've had conversations with people over the past few years, I realize I'm not alone in this. But we are tempted to slip back into the lie that God doesn't want anything to do with us, that he's sick of our failures, he's sick of working on us, he wants to keep his distance. That is a lie. And if you have wavered in your commitments to Christ, may you and I remember together that Jesus always takes us back and he's always calling us a press forward. Let me close with a final charge of application as we enter the year 2016. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives his followers the Great Commission. Verses 18 and 19, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I encourage you as 2016 approaches, commit yourself to the Lord. Restate your commitment to the Lord. I don't know what that means for you, but I want us to say together in 2016, may we resolve to grow grow as a child of God. May we read this great commission and resolve to engage in the work of the kingdom. I'm sure you've heard many times that the proper grammar in that passage is that it should say, as you are going. Jesus was implying that as you go, as you move through your life, um, to fulfill your callings and go throughout the year and make disciples, share the gospel, have them immersed in the local church, teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded you. What would your life look like and what would your particip- participation in this mission look like if you restated your commitment to it this year? How might um, our church look? How might Carrollton look? How might your family look? if we restated our resolve and our commitment to the Great Commission this year, would you be willing to ponder what Jesus might do? Would you spend these next few days daydreaming about what Christ might use, how he might use you for his purposes and for his glory? I encourage you this week to take out a journal, take out a pen, take out your Bible, and ask God to reveal to you how he wants you to participate in the Great Commission, how he wants you to follow him. Now, you may need to verbally process that with a friend or your spouse or a spiritual leader. But strive to figure out in the next few days what God desires for you to commit to in 2016. Final charge here. In 2016, let us entrust ourselves to Christ. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why would Jesus choose this as his parting words? 
Because this is the point where he's ascending to the Father, he's leaving, and he chooses to provide words of comfort. Uh, why not more parables? Why not more teaching or more direction? Why not more strategy for the great work that is to come that we see in Acts? Jesus is well aware of how prone we are to fear. Jesus is well aware that in the face of such a huge task, a huge mission, that we'll be prone to cower and to hide and to disengage ourselves. Jesus knows that we will question his presence in our lives. That's why we need to hear more than anything else that Jesus will be with us to the end of the age. He will be with us to death and beyond. We need to hear of his presence in our lives more than anything else. And there are so many of you that have suffered abandonment in some shape or form in your life. You felt and maybe you still feel deserted and maybe there have been people who should have been relational rocks in your life, whether that's a parent, a child, a spouse, and they deserted you, they forsake you. God will never forsake you. He will never cast you off. When Jesus was on the cross, he cried out to the Father. He said, my Father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be forsaken. I encourage you as you do create your New Year's resolutions to also pray and process in what ways is Jesus calling you to trust him? And what are the things of your life? What are the circumstances? What are the doubts that you have where you need to ask the Lord to come in and provide healing? That you need the Lord to come in and do some serious heart work so that you may grow in trusting him. How would it change you to know that Jesus is present in your life? What would be different in your heart, in your life, in your family, in Carrollton, in this church, if you knew Jesus is present? Jesus is with you. I'm so glad that today our worship theme was that Jesus is a faithful shepherd. This is true. I hope we believe it. The Lord is with us. Do not fear. Jesus will be with us till the end of the age. Do not be frightened and do not despair, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. I pray that this would be a church that would be marked by people who reject fear. May he make us a people who trust him, who follow him, who place our lives in his hands. And and the Lord has laid out good works for us. I pray that we would step forward with boldness, that we would pursue those good works. And we would be faithful to those good works so we would commit ourselves to them and obligate ourselves. God has redeemed us and he has promised to never leave us. And when our commitment wavers, and it will, may we truly believe and remember that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that moves and works in our lives and how it molds us and crafts us to make us reflections of Christ. We praise you that you do not cast us off when we fail you. We thank you that you always receive us, that you always welcome us, that you keep fellowship with us. Father, for the times that we do fail you, please forgive us. More than that, Father, please draw us to yourself when we stumble. When our commitment's wavering and it's feeble, please draw near to us and remind us that even though we lose our resolve and our commitment, Christ has never lost his resolve. He continually intercedes on our behalf. 
Therefore, we will always remain in your mercies because Christ has redeemed us. Amen.